Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up, I'm going to be chatting about a recent breakthrough in time crystals with three of the physicists who have done the research. And I'm also going to speak to the author of a feature article in Physics World about how quantum computers could be used to solve hard optimization problems. But first, are you about to embark on an exciting career in physics? Or maybe you've been in your job for some time and you're looking for a change. Well, you're in luck because I'm joined by my colleague, Laura Hiscott, who has just produced the Physics World's Careers 2022 Guide. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. So, Laura, COVID-19 and working from home has really changed how many of us work, especially in the knowledge economy, where many physics graduates are employed. Have you covered that in Careers 2022? Yes, we have. We've got a whole article about just that, um, because obviously a lot of employers are now much more open to having employees work from home um, and have flexible working. Um, And this seems to have changed a little bit, um, affected what they prioritise in the hiring process. Um, For example, several employees have said that um, in future they'll really um, look for candidates who Um, are really good at effective online communication, um, the ability to work autonomously and use online collaboration systems, and also uh, qualities like resilience and adaptability and creativity to work around difficulties, as we've all had to do for the the past two years. Uh, But it's also a great opportunity um, because... In 2019, Physics World published an article about the idea of emotional geography and how a lot of physics graduates actually prioritise location over the type of work that they want to do because um, they really want to remain, understandably, living close to family and friends and their support networks. But now that many employers are offering more flexible and remote working, um, that might give a lot more graduates um, more opportunities to prioritise what kind of work they want to do, um, as well as staying uh, near family and friends. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really changed things, hasn't it? And, and I think it's, it's been a change for the good for a lot of people. And quantum computing is, is also something that you look at um, in the guide, um, along with sustainable energy. Why did you choose to cover careers in those fields? Um, Yeah, well, I think um, one thing to be aware of when you're looking for a job is is that the the jobs market is constantly evolving depending on external factors and needs. And um, these are two great examples. Obviously, um, climate change is, you know, arguably the most important issue of our time. And there's a huge focus on green jobs. Um, And my first thought was, you know, um, that that physicists would work who wanted to work in a green job would somehow work on engineering renewable energy technologies. But there's also um, a lot of talk about the importance of systemic change. Um, so I wanted to find out, um, and indeed I, I ended up finding out that lots of physicists are actually involved in advancing sustainability by. Um, by being involved in consultancy and finance and policy work too, where they can still use their physics skills. So it was really interesting to learn about the variety of ways in which physicists can apply their skills. Um, 
to that revolution. And that sort of applies to quantum computing as well, because um, I'm, I suppose in the early days of the quantum computing industry, if, if we've indeed moved past those, it would be the physics and, and sort of technical skills that, that employers were looking for. But uh, I, I think they're looking for more than that these days, aren't they? Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. So um, the article about um, the quantum jobs market and how that's evolving, um, we thought that was really important because it's obviously a really exciting field um, and a lot of people will probably want to go to work in it. But also because it's still early days, we don't know exactly what kinds of jobs it will create. It might create entirely new ones. So how do you prepare for that? Um, but yeah, as as um, things move in the commercialization direction, as things go from startups to fully fledged companies and, and so on, um, the the kinds of people that these companies require, like you say, um, they'll need much more variety, not just people with PhDs in quantum physics. Um, they'll need people with all kinds of scientific and engineering skills. So it turns out that if you have your heart set on working in quantum technology, you don't actually need to um, focus so narrowly um, on on quantum skills early on. Um, so that was an interesting article to find out uh, to to research. <laughs> so, so what are some other issues that you've highlighted in the guide? Yeah, so two of the other articles actually go together quite nicely. One is about um, the range of options that are open to physicists, because obviously there, there's quite a lot of variety. There, there's a huge spectrum of careers that physicists can go into. Um, and that's exciting on the one hand, but then on the other hand, you've got the paradox of choice that it can be a bit daunting and you can't um, really know um, from looking at all these options, which one will be the best one for you. Um, so that article explores some of the the options that are quite common for physicists to go into. Um, and then we've got another article which kind of links to that because it's about the importance of um, getting hands-on experience um, to really find out what it's actually like to work in a particular field or industry. Um, so that article looks at summer internships and um, looks at case studies of people who tried out um, different jobs through summer placements um, and um, what what they learned from that um, and also their advice for for people who are interested in doing something similar um, on how to find the right placement and get that experience. And, and Careers 2022 also includes interviews with physicists who are well established in successful careers. Uh, I think you, you know you've got some real superstars in there. What what nuggets of careers advice uh, can be gleaned from these interviews? Um, yeah. So one common theme that came up a few times um, was that they they recommended just trying out new things that sort of links to the the summer internships really that um the importance of trying things out as many things as possible and seeing what you like and seeing what you can learn um saying yes to opportunities even if they might be outside your comfort zone um and exposing yourself to new ideas especially with the rising importance of um, interdisciplinarity um, that is coming up in lots of fields um, where it's important to, to have knowledge and skills from what might initially seem like quite disparate um, disciplines. 
Um, another um, nugget of wisdom was um, that you don't have to be perfect from the beginning. Um, you know, the important thing is to focus on learning from your mistakes and not to worry about, you know, um, getting everything 100% right, right from the start. Um, and also, um, one person mentioned the importance of working sustainably, especially when your um, when your work is really your passion, because a lot of people recommend, you know, following your passion. But he was saying that, he was so passionate about his work that he was actually burning himself out because he wanted to get involved in everything. And, um, and that's really tiring at the end of the day. So, um, so it's important to actively um, prioritize sustainable working for yourself. Mm, sounds like some, some great advice. And if, 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 if you're thinking about your career at the moment, um, you can find Laura's guide on the Physics World website. And the best route is via a blog that Laura's written, which is called Physics World Careers 2022 Guide is Out Now. And you'll find a link uh, to an online version of that guide there. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Hamish. Time crystals were first proposed by Nobel laureate Frank Wilczek in 2012. And since then, physicists have had some success in creating time crystals in the lab. This week, Hossein Tahiri from the University of California at Riverside, Andre Matsko from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, Lute Maliki from OE Waves, and Krzysztof Saha from the Jagiellonian University in Poland have published a paper describing all optical, dissipative, discrete time crystals. Christoph joins me down the line from Krakow, along with Hossein and Andre from California. Welcome to the podcast. So first things first, I think a lot of our listeners are probably wondering, what is a time crystal? Christoph, can you answer that question for us? Okay, so let me start with something which is more familiar to everybody from space crystals. Space crystals are systems where atoms, due to mutual interactions, they self-organize in a periodic pattern in space. And space crystals are everywhere. We can find space, space crystals in, in the kitchen, in the jewelry stores. These are space crystals. But in 2012, Frank Wilczek asked the question if crystal structure can also appear but in the time domain. And he considered many quantum many body system and he suggested that due to the interaction between particles, uh, such a system can spontaneously switch to the periodic motion. And very quickly it turned out that it was not feasible. However, in 2015, there was a kind of resurrection of time crystals in periodically driven systems. First, it was shown in, the, in an atomic system and later in the spin-based solid-state systems that quantum the system, due to, which is periodically driven, due to the interactions between particles, 
can spontaneously self-reorganize its motion and can choose the motion, periodic motion, which is with the period, which is different than the period dictated by the drive. So new periodic motion appears, and in other words, new crystalline structure emerges. And this kind of crystals are called discrete time crystals. And to gain some intuition about time crystals, it is good to remember that switching from space crystals to time crystals, we have to exchange the roles of space and time. In space crystals, we are interested in periodic distribution of particles in space at the fixed moment of time, at the moment when we perform the detection. Switching from space to time crystals, we exchange time and space. Now we fix a position in space, we locate a detector at a certain space point, and we ask if the probability for clicking of the detector behaves periodically in time. And in the formation of both space and time crystals, there is an important phenomenon which is called spontaneous symmetry breaking. And let me explain this by focusing on discrete time crystals in periodically driven systems. Such systems are described by the Schrödinger equation. And when we change the uh, when we shift the time parameter by the period of the external driving, the Schrödinger equation of course doesn't change. And one would expect that the steady state solution of the Schrödinger equation should also follow the periodicity of the external driving should follow the symmetry of the system. However, it, it may happen that due to the interaction between particles, uh, steady states become a Schrodinger cat-like states. And Schrodinger cat-like states can very quickly uh, collapse due to any perturbation. For example, due to measurement of the position of, of a single particle. And after the collapse, the system starts evolving with the period which is different than the period dictated by the drive and the discrete time crystal forms. So, Hossein, you've just published a paper in Nature Communications about a discrete time crystal that's based on a solid-state optical cavity. C can you describe how it works? So, the experiments rely on a small disc-shaped so-called whispering gallery mode resonator with a radius of one millimeter, uh, which is made of uh, magnesium fluoride. Magnesium fluoride is a transparent um, dielectric with third-order or care-type optical nonlinearity. The resonator, or cavity as it's often called, is pumped by two lasers, um, two distributed feedback or DFB lasers in particular. These lasers uh, pump two non-adjacent modes of the cavity. Each of them drives one resonant mode. And uh, the system therefore possesses clear discrete time translation symmetry dictated by the beat note or the beat frequency of the two pumps, that is uh, the separation or, or the difference between the frequencies of the two lasers. Now, the impact of these two pumps is that the optical field intensity or the photon count probability 
which Christoph referred to, at a fixed point, uh, at a fixed position along the path um, of the optical wave will be modulated with a period uh, dictated by the beat note frequency and specifically equal to the inverse of that beat note. This is the discrete symmetry imprinted uh, by the system drive. Now, when the optical power is high enough and the interaction of the photons mediated by the care nonlinearity of the resonating material is strong enough, new photons, photons at uh, new frequencies or photons with new colors will be generated. And these frequencies will be separated from the pumps and from each other by multiples of the beat frequency again. What we demonstrated in our experiments is that um, it's also possible to generate photons whose frequency falls between the two pumped frequencies. And uh, when these frequencies self-synchronize, they, they will emerge as equidistant from each other and from the pumps. And in this manner, they will essentially uh, divide the beat frequency to um, equal frequency intervals. And this is what we call subharmonic generation. Now, subharmonic generation is a signature of the emergence of a periodicity which is larger than the periodicity of the drive, in this case, uh, inverse beat note. Because frequency and time are reciprocals, are inverses of each other. And so frequency is divided by an integer, fa by an integer factor and the periodicity is multiplied by that same factor. And this is the discrete time translation symmetry breaking in our system, which um, signifies creation of discrete time crystals. And so, Hossein, what's different about your time crystal? Um, what's different from previous uh, attempts at making time crystals? Sure. So there are a couple of distinguishing uh, features that I'd like to highlight. First, uh, previous demonstrations were primarily focused on closed systems, but we have shown dissipative discrete time crystals. That is, in earlier uh, discrete time uh, crystal experiments, the system was essentially isolated from the environment and had negligible interaction with it. What happens when the system is open and not isolated from the ambient is that uh, both noise and dissipation come into the picture. Generally in physics, wherever there is a path for energy exchange between the system and its environment, noise also creeps in uh, through the same path. And that is essentially um, what physicists refer to as uh, the fluctuation dissipation theorem. Now, in an open system as ours, energy dissipation and noise tend to destroy the crystalline order. And that is why observing time crystals in such a system is significant. Experimental demonstrations of uh, discrete time crystals uh, had uh, so far um, uh, primarily focused on spin uh, systems, essentially coupled spin systems. Spin up goes to spin down, back to spin up, and uh, period doubling is observed. Our system accommodates a larger variety of symmetry breaking modes like period doubling, period tripling, quadrupling, and so on. So we get a, a larger variety of uh, discrete time crystals. Uh, third, the lifetime of the generated discrete time crystals in our system is uh, in principle infinite, meaning that as far as the drive of the system persists, so will the generated subharmonics. And that is one of the advantages of this photonic platform, which has matured over the past decade and with our particular driving scheme 
uh, it also demonstrate uh, discrete symmetry and its breaking. In other DTC demonstrations, discrete time crystal demonstrations, including those of Google and QTech, um, and, and a very recent dissipative of discrete time crystal in both Einstein condensates in an atom cavity system, uh, the lifetime of the discrete time crystals are on the order of a few hundred drive periods. And that's also a difference. But last, and I think most exciting, is that our system operates in room temperature. It does not require cryogenic cooling, even though it can operate at low temperatures as well. It's lightweight and low cost and has a very small footprint. As a result, this photonic discrete time crystal platform is fieldable and suitable for uh, operation outside complex laboratories. And that is why we hope that this demonstration would excite a lot of research in the field. And Christoph, when you when you first got in touch with me um, to tell me about this research, you you described your your system as being big in the time dimension, unlike other time crystals created in the lab. What what do you mean by big? Small discrete time crystals, as you said, are small but in the time dimension. They evolve with the period typically twice longer as the driving period. However, one can also realize big discrete time crystals evolving with the period even hundreds times longer than the driving period. And big discrete time crystals are very interesting because they consist of many elementary cells in time. Similarly, like ordinary space crystals consist of many elementary cells, but in space. And it, it means that we can do condensed matter in the time dimension, in big discrete time crystals. And all discrete time crystals realized experimentally so far, including also the recent experiment with the Google Sycamore quantum computer, all of them were small discrete time crystals. Big discrete time crystals can be realized, for example, in ultra-cold atoms bouncing on an oscillating atom mirror, and Peter Hannaford from Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne is setting up this kind of experiments. But in optical systems, realization of the big discrete time crystals is just reported in our paper in Nature Communications. So Andre, um, Hussein mentioned that your system uh, operates at room temperature. I'm guessing that that means there are going to be some practical applications for your time crystal. Okay, thank you, Hamish, for the question. Yes, indeed. Uh, and uh, let me start uh, from a discussion of the applications. In general, in time and frequency world, there are two common problems. In one of the problems, we need to divide frequency of an oscillator by known number. And uh, it is very well done in electronics. However, when frequency increases, we see that uh, doing this procedure is extremely hard. Time crystal solves this problem. We feed an uh, optical cavity with two signals from known sources. And then, because of the nonlinear interaction resulting in time crystal, we have division of the frequency by the number that corresponds to our system. Second problem in time and frequency is transfer of the frequency and timing. So in um, deep space networks that I'm working for, uh, we have time transfer from masers to antennas. And to achieve it, we take major signal and uh, put modulation on the light carrier. In the case of time crystal, we don't need any modulation. We just take two signals from probably optical clocks 
and we just put it on uh, on, on the optical signal and it propagates by itself because of the intrinsic property of the system. This system, as you mentioned, can be easily integrated. Uh, I would say like 10 years ago, uh, so-called care frequency comps were generated and people learned how to integrate those comps on a chip. Those comps involve similar parts as our time crystals. So uh, we don't expect any issues with integration and making these crystals uh, as some commodity for everybody, available for everybody. Another thing is kind of like if you speak about application, and this is um, related to Krzysztof, uh presentation, um, is basically uh, possibility of mimicking processes that you can observe in experiments with solid state um, uh, systems, time crystal systems. Since we can create uh, our system at room temperature and we can easily modify it, um, and all the equations, all the math that describes uh, photonic time crystals is similar to material time crystals, we can use our device to uh, predict what we would observe in much more complex experiments uh, that are created in laboratories. And now, kind of like, I would give uh, opportunity for uh, Krzysztof to add to uh, my points. Yeah, I, I fully agree with Andrei. In my opinion, uh, real applications of uh, time crystals will start when we can realize and control condensed matter phenomena in the time domain. And it is only possible in big discrete time crystals. Uh, for example, we already know that uh, solid state uh, phases and phenomena like superconductivity, insulating phases, topological phases, they all can be realized in the time domain. And I think that a new field of studies being just established, we recall sometimes time tronics. By time tronics, I mean building useful devices where crystalline structures in time play a crucial role. And I, I believe that time tronics is around the corner. Thank you. Well, that's really interesting. I, I think I've got a, a better understanding now of, of what a time crystal is and, and what it can be used for. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you, Hamish. Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Christoph Hossein and Andre's paper is called All Optical, Dissipative, Discrete Time Crystals, and is published in Nature Communications. You can read more about time crystals on the Physics World website in an article written by Christoph and Peter Hannaford. Just look for the headline, Time Crystals Enter the Real World of Condensed Matter. Quantum-enhanced optimization is a burgeoning field of research, and it's often touted as the solution to many computational problems, both hard and easy. However, researchers must overcome formidable challenges before quantum computers can be used to solve hard optimization problems. I'm joined down the line from the University of Maryland in the U.S. by Pradeep Narala, who is working towards a PhD on quantum error correction and complexity theory. Pradeep has written an article for Physics World about conquering the challenge of quantum optimization, which looks at the current state of the field. Hi, Pradeep. Welcome to the podcast. 
Hi, Hamish. A pleasure to join you here. So, Pradeep, what are optimization problems, and, and why can they be very difficult to solve using conventional computers? So, optimization problems really appear everywhere, from finding the best directions in Google Maps to uh, allocating inventories in your local grocery. Uh, such problems are really at the heart of the growing interest in quantum computers. If you follow the press uh, on quantum devices, you'll find claims suggesting that quantum computers will one day help with everything from food security to fighting climate change and also to find cure to uh, elusive diseases. At the core of these claims is often an optimization problem. For example, maximize the yield of a fertilizer and you can grow more food and feed more people. Reduce the time it takes to deliver mails and packages, and you'll have helped reduce fuel emissions. When you're working at a scale of a large corporation like uh, Amazon or FedEx, even a tiny percentage improvement could amount to large savings. Uh, and the reason we're turning to quantum computers to help optimize these problems is that they're just too hard for a conventional or a classical computer. Uh, the reason these problems tend to be hard is that, quite often, to find the best solution, you need to consider all possible solutions. Uh, if you're trying to find the shortest path to deliver 10 packages, uh, you'll have to calculate the distance of all possible paths connecting those 10 destinations. Uh, the number of such possibilities, and thus the time it takes to solve these problems, increases exponentially with the problem size. Uh, in computer science, there is a theoretical separation between problems that are easy, which means that the time to get to a solution is polynomial in problem size, and problems that are hard, where the time you need is exponential in problem size. Uh, a long-standing question in computer science is if these two families are really the same. This is the celebrated uh, p equals to np problem. If the classes were, the, were equal, uh, then all np hard problems would have a very efficient, quick algorithm. Someone would just have to discover it. Uh, but half a decade of research on the subject seems to suggest that these families are really separate uh, and that some problems are easy and some problems are just meant to be impossibly hard. And so that's where quantum computers come in, because you know you do hear claims that uh, that quantum computers uh, are better than conventional computers at solving some problems. Um, and, and I think there has been a well, perhaps a certain uh, amount of demonstration of that so far. But but why is that? Why? could or are quantum computers better at solving certain optimization problems? Uh, so quantum computing, uh, in a way, is an extension of traditional or classical theory of computation. What I mean by that is a quantum computer should be able to do everything a classical computer can, can do, plus more. It can do more because it can use exotic quantum mechanical phenomena like uh, interference that normal computers just don't have access to. The question thus becomes, 
are there any useful algorithms for which we can exploit this quantum behavior to get a speed up? Uh, one such problem, kind of well known, is that of factoring a large number into two primes. We do not have an efficient classical algorithm to do it, but in uh, 1994, uh, we discovered a quantum algorithm that can factorize numbers in polynomial time. This was a major breakthrough when it came out, and it drove ex exactly. Uh, and Shor's algorithm uh, drove much of subsequent interest in quantum computers. Uh, the, the important and kind of a subtle thing to note here is that factoring a number isn't exactly a hard problem in the sense that we do not know if this problem is really NP-hard. Uh, on, on the other hand, the hard optimization problems uh, people usually solve in industrial applications are known to be NP-hard, and we do not expect quantum computers to solve this exactly. However, uh, for most optimization problems, you really don't need exact solutions. Uh, if you are delivering pizza to a hundred addresses, you don't need to find the most efficient and fastest route. It usually is enough to find uh, a route that makes sure that most pizzas get delivered within a reasonable amount of time, and these are called uh, approximate solutions. Uh, and decades of research in computer science has given us some pretty good algorithms to find these approximate answers. Now, what researchers in quantum computing are hoping is that uh, since quantum computers can exploit this exotic physics, it may be able to discover better approximate solutions than the classical methods. Uh, one of the first breakthroughs uh, in quantum optimization showed that indeed there are problems for which the answers genera generated by a quantum machines are uh, better than known best tech classical techniques. Uh, so this breakthrough generated a lot of excitement, uh, not just in quantum computing community, but also among researchers working on uh, traditional algorithms. And in fact, they managed to discover a classical algorithm which did better than the quantum algorithm. And today, as it stands, whether quantum uh, optimization techniques are truly better remains an excellent uh, open question. And quantum computers today, I mean, really, you know, we've just started building quantum computers over the past decade or so. And they tend to be um, very noisy systems. Um, it, it, they're, they're difficult to, uh, to, to, to maintain. Um, so so what, what sort of, of hard problems could be solved on these, these sort of nascent, noisy quantum computers? Are, are, are there any, or are we going to have to wait until the, the technology is much better? Uh, like, I'm really glad you asked about nascent, noisy computers. Uh, to be sure, you're exactly right. Uh, problems, right uh, pro problems like factoring numbers, for example, need uh, ultra-precise machines with uh, a large number of qubits, which we won't have for the immediate future. However, there are nifty techniques that researchers have developed that can be run in near-term machines as well. 
the most popular family of such techniques uh, goes by the name of uh, the variational algorithm. Uh, the reason it is called variational is that it works by making the quantum computer generate a guess, which is then tweaked and modified to maximize or minimize some target property. Uh, this may sound convoluted, but it is actually an extremely popular technique. Uh, machine learning, for example, works the exact same way by tweaking the neural network parameters until it can make uh, good predictions. Uh, over the last eight years or so, this quantum variational algorithm has become extremely popular for uh, optim optimization problems. Uh, like a quick Google search will show you all kinds of ways it has been put to use, from optimizing placement of uh, electric ch car charging stations uh, to optimizing flight dynamics of an airplane to managing financial portfolios in banks. Pretty much any problem you can imagine, you can map it to a variational quantum algorithm. And the researchers across the world are using quantum computers provided by companies like IBM, Google, to test these techniques. However, uh, given that quantum computers today only have tens of qubits with a lot of noise, we only have succeeded in making uh, proof-of-concept demonstrations, and we're nowhere close to optimizing problems at a scale they realistically appear in the industry. The important thing is that it is not enough for a quantum computer to merely solve a problem, it should really do it faster or more accurately than known classical methods. Uh, and the proof of concept demonstrations that we've done so far, they look promising, but they're only idealized or toy versions of realistic problems, uh, and they're not enough to encourage uh, immediate uh, or widespread adoption. And in terms of solving, you know, let's say practical problems, uh, you know, problems that if you solve them, you can really make a difference. What what has to be done in in terms of of developing quantum computing? Is it is it simply a matter of of creating better qubits that aren't as noisy and coming up with a way of of connecting them all together, um, or 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 is there more? Is there more than that? Yeah, the, the question of better qubits is, is, is part of the answer. The challenges facing quantum computing today uh, is really a threefold challenge. Uh, the first, like you said, uh, is the problem of noise. Even though these variational optimization techniques were thought to be implementable in uh, noisy near-term computers, uh, new research shows that even a little bit of noise can have detrimental effects on the outcomes you get. Uh, it seems that noise levels will have to go down uh, by an order of magnitude, or even two, from what you find in present hardware for quantum algorithms to have any chance against classical alternatives. Uh, this, however, is a solvable problem. Uh, quantum hardware has been improving steadily over the last decade or so. So there's a very good chance we may overcome the noise barrier. Now, the second uh, and more critical challenge is that even if we manage to eliminate noise completely, we do not have strong confidence that the near-term quantum techniques are going to be truly better 
than traditional alternatives. Uh, researchers working in the field will have to show, using rigorous mathematical proofs, that their algorithms indeed outperform known alternatives. Uh, given that quantum computing is a relatively young discipline compared to the vast accumulated knowledge on conventional algorithms, this is going to be a hard uphill battle. And it may be that in due time, we will indeed discover strong mathematical support for quantum algorithms. But as of now, that is still unknown. That said, uh, the really interesting thing is that we can make the exact same criticism against machine learning, deep learning in particular, which has been uh, widely successful and has delivered astounding results, even though our understanding of deep learning remains hazy and incomplete. Uh, much in the same way, if quantum algorithms can deliver good performance, then this search for mathematical proofs would be uh, unnecessary. When it comes to industry applications, performing well in practice is far more important than being mathematically sound. Uh, however, uh, since the quantum computers available today, like I said, are noisy and small, we cannot really test these algorithms to measure the performance the same way we can benchmark a classical algorithm on a large computer. Uh, and, and we'll have to wait for a very long time before we have reliable data uh, to, to measure or say anything about the performance uh, in, in a realistic use case. And, and you spoke about this, this variational technique um, that, you know, is something that, that is promising um, when implemented on, on a quantum computer. What sort of practical optimization problems um, could benefit? What, what are the most likely to be run on quantum computers in the future? You know, assuming that the, that scientists and engineers can, 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 can get them working. This is a very important question. Uh, when quantum computers were first conceived, uh, they were thought of as this tool to simply study nature better, which we know is quantum mechanical. Uh, when you go to microscopic timescales, you start seeing quantum mechanical behaviors like quantum entanglement and quantum tunneling. Uh, and because of this phenomena, which conventional computers can't really simulate, we can't study them accurately enough using uh, traditional computers. And it therefore makes sense that a quantum computer, which already has this quantum behaviors baked into it, will be able to study uh, it better than a traditional computer. Uh, that the quantum computer also happens to have advantage for other applications, like factoring numbers, is simply uh, miraculous. Uh, when I spoke to researchers working on uh, various aspects of quantum computers, it seems that there's a general consensus that a quantum algorithm ought to be better for problems that somehow originate from quantum physics or chemistry, where you observe, again, these quantum uh, behaviors. Uh, this includes problems related to molecules, proteins, and also uh, exotic materials like superconductors. Uh, in these cases, mapping the problem to a quantum computer is just simply more natural. Uh, I can easily imagine quantum computers helping uh, optimize drug molecules uh, and fertilizers 
or designing better chemicals for storing energies and batteries. Uh, however, it is not immediately clear what uh, airline schedules or package delivery routes have to do with quantum behavior. And in those cases, the use of quantum computers appear less natural. It doesn't necessarily mean that they won't benefit from quantum computers. It's just that it's not immediately obvious where that quantum advantage will come from. Uh, and it remains uh, a subject of active research. Well, that's great. Th thanks, Pradeep. Um, you can read uh, Pradeep's article on the Physics World website. Just look for the headline, Conquering the Challenge of Quantum Optimization. Thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thanks. I could share all this interesting stuff with you. This week, the James Webb Space Telescope achieved another milestone, with NASA releasing the first unaligned images from the instrument. These are 18 blurry images of the same star, which should merge into one sharp image once the telescope's 18 mirrors are aligned. You can read more on the Physics World website. Just look for the news headline, NASA's James Webb Space Telescope Releases First Unaligned Images. And while you're on the website, do check out the latest Physics World Stories podcast, which features interviews with scientists working on the Space Telescope mission. Stories can also be found at your favorite podcast provider. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Laura Hiscott, Pradeep Narala, Christoph Saha, Hossein Tahiri, and Andre Matsko for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. Physics World.